great to have you back. Um, I'm joined again by Anna today. Um, it's not long after we did our PIMOP series um, and we covered neurological toxicities uh, as one of the sessions, which I found fascinating and I found a real sort of learning opportunity. Um, so Anna, I thought in about 15 minutes, uh, which may be a challenge, we would just talk briefly about myasthenia gravis, which was a, a topic that we discussed in some depth at that meeting. But yet there were lots of questions that came in afterwards. So I guess maybe if I quickly just paint a picture for those who are completely sort of haven't thought about myasthenia gravis or have never heard of it. It's a condition that's characterized by a problem with a neuromuscular junction. We know that nerves normally are there to innervate muscles and cause contraction of muscles. And we know classically in myasthenia gravis, it's a problem with the acetylcholine receptor, which in essence is a protein that sits on the surface of the muscle. And normally the nerve tells the muscle what to do by throwing some chemical, the acetylcholine across the membrane and telling the muscle to contract. And we know in myasthenia gravis, it can present with in essence, muscle weakness, and that can affect sort of isolated muscles, but can affect the respiratory muscles and therefore can lead to serious complications, including the need for respiratory support. So, Anna, we, we talked a lot about myasthenia gravis on that day. I guess what would be nice, um, I've kind of painted a brief picture, how for those who don't see these kind of cases often, who may be part of, let's say, an acute oncology, on, oncology team, or maybe, for example, in an emergency department, what are the kind of symptoms that that they should look out for? And I know we can't cover all of them, but what are the kind of common things or maybe the worrying things that we might see? I think uh, neurological toxicities are one of the ones that I think scare us all the most, if I'm honest, because I think it's the it's the thing that sort of seems the most specialised of all the things that we do. And don't get me wrong, all of it is sort of specialised. I think neurological toxicity is is a, a real concern area because I think people feel very out of their depth in oncology with it. And that's very understandable. And, and I think, you know, we all sort of have felt that in our time, if that makes sense. And I think the key really is to be aware of the fact it's a possibility. So we know that this can happen. And to treat it with quite a lot of suspicion very early on. So I say that for most things. So I realise it's not that different. But when when people have got neurological toxicity, in my mind, I'm like, right, I need to understand what is actually happening. And I need to understand how quickly it's changing. Because for me, one of the big hallmarks of understanding how, how much of a problem you've got with a neurological toxicity is how quickly that patient is becoming weaker or got new symptoms. So that's the first thing, the, t the time that it's changing over also what that what that manifests like so is their fatigability which is one of the hallmarks of myasthenia gravis that actually the people people get them their muscles fatigue very quickly as they try to use them so if that is there that's always a really important hallmark to understand but also which, which what is affected so is it is it a ptosis is it is it an ocular type symptom is it more that it's um sort of shoulder girdle or um limb muscles or is it more that they've got um, worrying signs such as um, issues with breathing or swallowing so for me that's how I break them down into those three groups so I isolated things concerning needs treatment but not too worrying in its own right but uh, thinking about the fact that it might progress into more more worrying things but it may stay as it is sort of muscle particularly particularly arms and shoulders but any muscle weakness of the limbs more concerning and a bit worried that that might progress but again probably okay and needs monitoring 
but not but not really really worrying and then the group that either have got issues ventilating and sometimes they describe that as shortness of breath but you and you go down a route of thinking about have they got pneumonitis or anything and their scans are quite clear but they struggle to lie flat for their scans those things are always quite interesting to sort of pick up on but also if people have described voice changes or swallowing issues those that group are the ones that I'm always like right I need to I need to do something now and I need to be thinking about are they going to get worse over the next few hours and how am I going to support that person and they always present on a Friday and they always need stuff happening you know within the next few hours but I think that's that's for me how I how I break them down and how I start thinking about how worried I am about them I don't know if that reflects what your your thoughts are yeah no I, I think that's a great summary Anna and I think for me you know I actually had a case on a Friday not that long ago and it presented with just feeling tired and falling asleep and some difficulty swallowing and I've got to be honest on another day um, I could have dismissed that as as lots of other things rather than than related to myosina gravis and we did a blood gas they were in type 2 respiratory failure so the CO2 was up oxygen was, was down and and within a few hours they were on HDU and then ITU intubated but I guess that my reflection on that case is it it was knowing listening to what you've just painted it was really classical in terms of presentation but at the time it was very easy to think about you know this could just be that they're tired from their treatment or they they've had a rough ride I guess so I'm mindful of time so I want to get into really the nuts and bolts of this so let's say that you you know you see a case like this on a Friday you're worried they've got let's say some ocular symptoms some difficulty swallowing and they're saying their shortness of breath isn't you know they're a little bit more short of breath I guess my my feeling would be get some people involved like either experts in the field or you know your neurologist quite early I, I think would be one of my feelings Anna but there's often a debate around steroids here so I just want to put that out there and say let's try and give some very simple guidance as oncologists and except the neurologists may feel differently and we need to work with them you know as an oncologist who may be seeing this in clinic where do you stand on steroids? interesting and, and you know I think over the last couple of years I've had lots of conversations about this so I think there's a first thing that that we recognize that in the normal population who haven't had immunotherapy myosinia gravis is completely and universally caused by antibodies at the neuromuscular junction so it is an autoantibody driven disease in our patient population there is definitely a some patients that have an autoantibody driven disease but there are also quite a lot that don't ever have autoantibodies and that's probably because there's a direct T cell interaction with the neuromuscular junction as opposed to it being a, a secondary effect from an autoantibody process don't worry too much about the detail of that. It just means that they act in a slightly different way in the, in the majority. So, And that's why um, I think we are more um, comfortable in this patient population in using steroids. So certainly um, the thing that neurologists worry about when they talk about using high dose steroids in myasthenia gravis is that they get something called a, a steroid dip at a day, around day 10. So that's not immediately. And I think that's the first learning point that the steroid dip doesn't happen immediately. It's further on down the line. It also doesn't tend to happen in patients that don't have severe symptoms. So those that have got the ptosis and the weak, the sort of limb weakness side of things, neurologists also use steroids for. So I tend to very be very comfortable in using steroids. And actually, I think the difference in our patient population compared to maybe those that get it um, sort of endogenously is that we actually see and are comfortable and, and see benefit from higher doses of steroids. So I tend to use the same principles that I use for every other uh, immunotherapy toxicity in terms of oral steroids if it's a grade two and and IV steroids if it's a grade three. 
the the patient population I get most worried about are the ones that I was describing with the swallowing difficulties and uh, and potential um, respiratory involvement. In those patients, I would use steroids, but I would also start thinking about using either IVIG or plasmapheresis quite early. The reason I think plasmapheresis uh, IVIG is a good call is it has both T cell and B cell activity. So actually, it doesn't really matter whether you've got a T cell directed problem or an autoantibody directed problem; it's still very effective. So if that patient landed with me on a Friday and I was seeing those sorts of symptoms, I would have a conversation with my neurology colleagues, and that can either be the neurology registrar on call for for the for the region or or the neurologist that I formed a relationship with. Either is fine, and I think it goes back to the point of trying to expand the education so everybody's heard of this stuff and everybody seen it but either way I'll have a conversation and say I think this person is IVIG because they've got symptoms of this I'm going to give them high dose steroids as well because we don't tend to see that dip but I would like to give them um, something alongside it because they're presenting in a very unwell acute situation so normally for me rule of thumb is I use steroids in the first two groups alone and that seems to work quite well and we don't tend to see a dip but in the severely unwell ones then I will often work with my neurology colleagues and give steroids but also give um, IVIG normally alongside it um, because actually that that works very well Um, and it it can it gives you sort of three days of cover while you're seeing what happens in in what direction and whether the patient's improving or not but I do tend to think we use higher doses of steroids than they use in the the normal setting as well and that seems to be what you need to do to get an effect so I have to say that that that's quite an important thing but it's always just about working with your neurology colleagues and learning together um, and making sure that you know we're monitoring for those dips monitoring for those changes I think alongside the steroid conversation, there's always the question about whether you use peridostigmine. Um, and I don't know what your experience is of it, of it Ricky. What, do you, what are your thoughts? Yeah, so I, so I guess my, my sort of two headlines would be that I, I do use higher doses. So I, I see these a little bit like I see the cardiac toxicity, the potential myocarditis. So I tend to go in with much higher doses of, of methylprednisolone. That can be up to a gram. Um, and I think the pridostigmine question, so I, I do advocate using pridostigmine. And in essence, that the, the idea with pridostigmine is to increase the amount of acetylcholine that's in the, the, the neuromuscular junction. I think our neurologists feel that it doesn't add a great deal, but I've never seen that it causes a problem. And so I think pridostigmine it is worth doing, Anna. I'm not sure it it necessarily is the main part of treatment for me. Um, I think, like you say, just for the audience, so um, IVIG is essentially diluting the, the the antibodies. Although, as Anna said, it it it, it helps in the T cells as well. And plasmapheresis is a, is is in essence cleaning the blood, just so so people are are clear on those. But I guess the, to answer your question, Anna, yeah, higher doses of steroid for me. I, I view it a little bit like the cardiac toxicities and pretty me whilst I don't think necessarily the data is robust I certainly don't think there's any harm in doing that. I think the only thing for me is that just being aware of the fact that you have to build the pridostigmine dose up quite slowly because you can get really nasty gastro gastrointestinal side effects. So I think, you know, sometimes in oncology and particularly as patients are wheeled off, you know, if they do need to go to ITU, which I have to say, I know that might be a bit sensationalist, a bit scary, it's quite it's quite rare. Um, the keys are being able to monitor your patient well. So thinking about, you know, bedside device capacity monitoring, thinking about um regularly reviewing the the progression of their neurology making sure you get um salt uh, speech and language involved very early so that you can make sure you're, you're reviewing swallow and things these things are really really important the number of people that need to go to ITU is relatively small but it does happen and it's worth thinking about and I think you're right Ricky it's about those patients that have got you know 
our patients often feel a bit fatigued and I'm always you know you know you and I have a conversation about all the time it's really important to not ignore fatigue in this patient population it generally speaking means something the thing it means is obviously a bit varied which obviously isn't particularly helpful but it's just I think it's just when you're talking and training and thinking about patients on immunotherapy just thinking if I've got somebody who's got fatigue and is describing some form of weakness they just need eyes on you need to get those people in to have to to review them and certainly a couple of my patients have described this sort of feeling of sort of not being able to hold their head up which is a slightly bizarre thing but they they, but it's quite classic it would seem that they will sort of say you know I've got I feel weakness across my shoulders and I can't hold my head up and that Two of my patients who have described that have both turned out to have myasthenia. So I think it's those those small cues. But yeah, when we're using drugs, I think we're, we're quite good at being confident using high doses of steroids. And, and I and I I feel very similarly. I view it very much in the same same group as myocarditis, which I think is a really important group thing for us to come back to in just a second. But with the pyridostigmine, you just need to build it up slowly. Otherwise, people will end up being quite shaky and have lots of GI side effects, which is pretty nasty. So I tend to sort of build it up slowly over a few days um, into a few weeks. Great. And so we'll just briefly touch on investigations, then I want to get to the myocarditis association. So, you know, I think people get hung up on what investigations to do, you know, autoantibodies like the anti-acetylcholine receptor, anti-striated, anti-musk. And I guess my advice to people would be, you know, we send these autoantibodies, you know, there are neurophysiological tests we can show fatigability with. But I think my message, Anna, would be almost don't worry too much about those things. Worry more about the patient in front of you. Is, is that fair to say? I think it is. I think the, the thing about autoantibodies is they're not going to help you in the acute setting because they take three to four weeks to come back. And that's in it. That's in a centre that runs them in house. So if you've got to send them off into the into the sunset for a while, you can't rely on them to give you the diagnosis. So I, I would say this is very much a clinical diagnosis, looking at the sort of the, the spectrum of things that you've got in the, in the patient in terms of their symptoms. But I do send autoantibodies off in everybody because actually I think it then helps me characterise whether they, you know, what what group they're going to sit in. Is this an autoantibody driven driven problem? or is this actually a, a direct T-cell problem? And that probably does help me decide what I'm going to use further down the line in terms of um, subsequent treatment if, I, if I'm going to need it. I think that's the other thing. Quite a lot of sort of novel um, endogenous myasthenia, you, you use steroids for a, a while, wean them down, and, and then they don't have a problem. I think increasingly across immunotherapy toxicity generally we have got a group of patients who need a secondary steroid sparing immunosuppression for a longer period of time interestingly very rarely forever but often they and neurological toxicity certainly seems to be a group that they too tend to need to be able to get off steroids completely they do tend to need a secondary agent for a period of time so i think autoantibodies are useful because they can help govern that conversation a little bit and it also helps you know whether you've got a higher risk of a steroid dip or not so i do think they're helpful but i don't rely on them and I think you start treatment in a, in a clinically guided fashion um, and, and go from there. I think the other thing always with with all the neurological toxicities is just ruling out the other causes of it. So I do think it's important to MR these patients just to make sure they've not got metastatic disease that's acting in a particularly bizarre way. I do think it's just important of thinking of your differentials and doing those sort of investigations to make sure we are genuinely dealing with immunotherapy toxicity. But I, I don't rely on the results of autoantibodies to, dr- to drive my initial therapy, certainly. 
Great. And so maybe just in the final minute, um, Anna, one of the things that, that came up in the meeting and one of the things I find quite fascinating is we know with the idiopathic myasthenia gravis, they tend not to see the triple M syndrome. Um, but we do, you know, not infrequently see triple M with um, with this, with myasthenia secondary to checkpoint inhibitors. So I'm, I was wondering if maybe just in 60 seconds, Anna, you could just tell us what triple M means for those who may not have heard of it and why it's important to think about. Yeah, I call this the terrible triad, which is probably less PC, but um, but absolutely how I think about it. So it's a combination of myasthenia, myositis and myocarditis. Um, and I actually think it's, it's very rarely described outside of the immunotherapy setting, which is quite interesting. Um, possibly related to the fact that the the T cells have got a, a common a common target and that's why they're affecting all three structures. So patients can get myopathy, they can get pain, they can get myocarditis and they can get neurological toxicity. It's interesting in terms of is it always myasthenia? So it, I would say it isn't it, there's often a neuritis component, often myasthenia, but it doesn't have to be. But what what I've learned from this is if I have a patient that's presenting with neurological toxicity that looks like myasthenia, I will always check their cardiac markers. And if I've got a patient who's presenting with myocarditis, I will always monitor them to make sure they're not developing neurological symptoms. And if I look at our patient population, as you know, I've, I don't know if people listening know, but in Liverpool, we have a, a very robust cardio-oncology approach and we do baseline cardiac markers and we do cardiac markers if patients present with fatigue. So we do have quite a lot of patients that we pick up with myocarditis. So in that population, it's probably about 10% of people that get this triple M condition where they, they present with neurological and cardiac and muscle toxicity in, in combination. There's also some papers that have recognised a hepatitis alongside it. And I've certainly had one patient that has had that as well. So I think it's just this case of this sort of overall, overall sort of immunostimulation that's then leading to this, this complex condition. In terms of managing them, their neurology often is the easiest bit to manage. So I think everybody gets most worried about the neurology because it, it's it's sort of probably the furthest out of our comfort zone. Um, but actually, they tend to be managed. That bit tends to be managing managed relatively easily. And I've had patients that are, some have presented with swallowing issues, some have presented with 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 sort of limb weakness, and some have or shoulder weakness, and some have presented with ptosis. So it is very varied. It doesn't have a a classic sort of which category from a myasthenia perspective. But their neurology tends to respond very nicely to treatment but then their myocarditis is a bit more of a challenge the, uh, the other thing is that certainly there is a, a case or two that people have commented on that because we have to use very high doses of steroids and myocarditis you do have to monitor the neurology quite closely particularly around that 10-day dip but certainly they are it is an incredibly difficult um triad to treat patients have a really um really sort of turbulent course and i think it's just about being aware of it so the, the last couple of patients that have presented with neurological symptoms i've said in my mdt I think we should do cardiac markers. I really don't want these to be positive, but I think we should do them. And they have turned out both to be positive, interestingly. So really worth thinking about doing a CK, a ProBNP and a, a troponin in patients that have got um, neurological side of, uh, symptoms. The other thing I find quite interesting is CKs are variable use in patients that have got myocarditis. And we'll obviously cover that in a different podcast. But in patients that have got this terrible triad, they normally have a relatively elevated CK at the point where you do the cardiac markers. So it's another marker to say, that could well be what's going on here. Doing the CK in this patient population is actually quite interesting. So yeah, they're a they're a, they're a challenging bunch, but they do happen. And again, I think a lot of this is just about thinking about what might the poss what's possible. And so if you have a patient presenting with any of these three conditions, think about have they got the other ones as well, and then and then work from there. So ask about swallowing and ask about breathing, in, and weakness in patients that are presenting with myocarditis, which you wouldn't normally necessarily think to ask.
Perfect. So Anna, I'm just going to bring this one to a close. So I think for the audience, you know, I think neurological toxicity, we've always thought to be, you know, in the rare category. I think increasingly we're using so many of these treatments that we're going to see more of them. I think they can be scary the first time you see one, but remember that there's networks of people out there that you can contact. I think it's important that we can be reassured around steroids and know that, that dip tends to occur later. I think it's really important from the, the, the podcast to remember that, you know, our neurologists are very used to managing um, idiopathic um, myasthenia gravis. Do reach out to them. There may need to be some conversations about the, the nuances, but I think it's important to remember that this is one of those conditions where high doses of steroids are often used. Start with lower level, lower uh doses of pridostigmine and, and titrate up and early use of things like immunoglobulins and plasmapheresis. And finally, just to remember about Triple M, um, which I think is important to have in the back of our minds. So Anna, thank you so much for, uh, for talking this through again. I look forward to the next podcast. Great. Thanks, Ricky. Me too.